This is Psalm 67. May God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face shine on us so that your ways may be known on earth, your salvation among all nations. May the peoples praise you, God. May all the peoples praise you. May the nations be glad and sing for joy, for you rule the peoples with equity and guide the nations of the earth. May the peoples praise you, God. May all the peoples praise you. The land yields its harvest. God, our God, blesses us. May God bless us still so that all the ends of the earth will fear him. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. I would invite you to pray with me for our time together this morning. God, we thank you that you have not hidden yourself from us, but you have revealed yourself to us in your word. We thank you that it is trustworthy and reliable, that we can base our lives and our hopes on what you have told us about who you are, what you have done, and what you will do. We pray that you would open our hearts this morning to hear anew from you these things, that we might be changed, that we might have our hopes renewed. In your son's name we pray, amen. Well, as Kenny mentioned, we have been going through a series for the fall called God's Mission and God's People. Uh, Up to this point, we've been working through largely the book of Jonah and looking at what is God doing uh, through the picture of Jonah to show us about what he cares about, what his mission to the world is to redeem, renew, and restore the people of the world as well as the place of the world. We are taking another break from Jonah this week to look at Psalm 67 and to see what it has to say about God's mission and God's people Uh, But before we get started on that, I want to take a break even from our sermon series to just talk briefly about what happened last Sunday uh, in Las Vegas. I don't know what your week has been like. If you know anyone that was affected by this, if you feel affected by it at all, if it's just blown by you and not been on your radar, we want church to be a place. We want our community to be a place where you can bring yourself as you are whatever you are feeling or not feeling, whatever frustrations or pains you may have, and take them to God. We want to create that space for you this morning. Our text will touch on some of the things that were involved with last week's events, but not entirely. We are still focusing on mission, and I think really in light of the event of last Sunday, the mission is even more crucially important to talk about. There is an urgency placed on sharing the good news of what God has done with those around us. And in the days to come as Christians, we may be asked by our coworkers, by our friends, by our kids, what do you think about this? What should we do about this? What does this mean? I would just invite us to be quick to listen and slow to speak, that we would not take what the world already has and give it back to it, but that as Christians, we would give the world what it does not have as we think about this, which is the gospel. The gospel is not overly simplistic. The gospel is not wrapped up in just one facet of this. The gospel is not fully comprehended by more gun control or no gun control, though it is deeply concerned with preserving life. The gospel is not just wrapped up in knowing why this person did that, because whatever his reasons were, they still do not justify it. And it may be even more of a cruelty, maybe even more subversive on this man's part that he left 
no trace of why he did this so that those who grieve might never know why the ones they loved died. So I would encourage us not to be submissive to this man even in death, but that we would set aside whatever his reasons were and acknowledge that whatever anyone's reasons are for violence, they are not enough. That there is not such a thing apart from God as a righteous anger and so few of us have it and so few of us know what it really is to be in his position. So I would just invite us to think more about how we can walk humbly with those in our own neighborhoods that have experienced violence, those that have experienced oppression, to think about how to care for them, to be patient, to endure with them, because so many people that were the story last week will be forgotten next year, but their pain will still be there, their loss will still be there, they will still be grieving. I hope that we as a Christian community can be marked as a people that endures with other people that grieve, that don't get tired by grief, but that persevere. So this morning, uh, we are going to look at Psalm 67 and try to think about these things as we go through the psalm. Try to think about what it is for God to be pursuing people around the world. Uh, I want to suggest that Psalm 67 is actually a prayer. Uh, Many commentators think that several elements of this psalm suggest that it's not just a song, but a prayer. And I think we are on good footing to consider the entire thing a prayer, that we can consider this psalm the prayer of God's mission, or at least a prayer of God's mission. And so that's how I want us to consider it this morning, as a prayer of mission. And there are uh, three things that I think the text does, uh, that it shows us this morning, that help us get our hearts and minds around what it is to have this prayer of mission becoming from God's people to the world. And those are a request for blessing, which comes out in verses 1 and 6 and 7. The reason for that request, which we see in verses 2 and 4, and the refrain of the request that we see in verses 3 and 5. So the actual request for blessing, the reason for the request, and the refrain. So just jumping right in, what is this blessing about? I think it's easy to just read the word blessing and skip on over and say, blessed, got it, moving along. But what is the psalmist actually referring to when he says blessing? This is actually an important thing to think about when we read scripture. What is the text trying to say? Not what do I assume that it's saying. What is the psalmist trying to say here when he is requesting blessing from God? When he is saying, may God be gracious to us and bless us. Well, I think verse six actually brings out for us what's being talked about here. Verse six says, the land yields its harvest. God, our God, blesses us. Many commentators see that this word harvest is pointing to the fact that this psalm was likely used in the life of the church around the season of harvest, maybe at Passover at the beginning of the grain harvest or at Pentecost at the end of the grain harvest or even more regularly. But more than likely, this is particularly addressed to the idea of crops, which were critically important. They're still critically important today, but even more so in the ancient world. This is either asking God for a good harvest for the year or in acknowledging the harvest that's already come in, asking God to do it again next year. But why ask for this? Why do we even need to say, God, please bless us with a good harvest? Why can't we just expect that good things will come our way? Why can't we just expect that God will keep the creation going, that we'll keep having all the things that we've had before? I think a lot of us assume that. I assume that in my everyday, that I will walk into the grocery store and there'll be food there. I don't ask God to bless us with food. 
I just assume that it will be there. Why does the psalmist feel it necessary to ask that God would provide for them, for Israel particularly, with a blessing of a harvest? Well, it's because this is actually thinking about, as much as Scripture does, Scripture that's already gone before it. This is thinking back to Genesis 3, 17 and 19, when Adam and Eve fell out of their relationship with God. In verses 17 and 19, it says, and this is God speaking, it says, And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Thinking back to Genesis, the psalmist reminds us that we have to ask for blessing because we lost it. It is not a given. We like to think in our culture that we are basically good people and that basically good things should happen to us. And though scripture believes more than any other religion, more than any other view in the dignity and the value of personhood and humanity, it also believes equally in the radical brokenness of humanity. It is more honest than anything else and more hopeful than anything else. And the two must be held together. We can't diminish one or the other because in that we will miss what is actually going on in our lives, what is broken and what needs to be fixed. The psalmist is asking for mercy and salvation from the curse of Genesis 3. They're asking that they can still have hope to know that God said that he would restore them in Genesis 3 and that the curse would not be the entirety of their future, but that there would still be a hope for them. They're asking, God, we know what you did this last year, but would you do it again next year? And maybe you think, you know, these ancient people are just superstitious and they can't figure out and they can't get it together that, of course, God is going to keep producing food and things are going to be fine. But we do this. I do this. How many times have we prayed for God to do something and he has done it, and the next time something difficult has come along, we think, I don't know if you're going to do this, God. We regularly have the same feeling that the psalmist has of we live in a broken world, and that brokenness is our expectation. We internally feel that. We internally know that things are not always going to come out right for us, and we hope that God is going to be there for us, so we ask for him to bless us. But this psalm particularly is asking for God to bless Israel. In the Old Testament, the people of God were not as we are now, a diverse, uh, multifaceted, across-the-world people. They were a local, particular, national people. And one author, D.A. Carson, says, Because the people of God constituted a nation, it was impossible to dissociate God's blessing on the people from the welfare of the nation or God's judgment of the people from the decline of the nation. The psalmist is asking particularly that God's particular people remain his particular people, that he continue to bless them so that they can continue to be what they were called to be, which is a blessing to other people. This is not just asking for blessing for themselves. You might read this text and think, that is so selfish. Bless me so that I can bless other people, right? That's not what this is asking about. This is asking in the consciousness of Israel as a people that if they fail, that in the eyes of the world, God will have failed. You can't disassociate the two. They are his people. He is their God. 
In the same way, Christians, we are his people. He is our God. He has staked his reputation on us, and we may call on him to bless us because he has associated himself with us. This is not just saying, God, keep us afloat. This is asking to be blessed, to be a blessing. This is about putting something tangible on display that the world could see. That's what God does. God is not just some sort of spirit. Christianity is not just about spirituality. If you read both the Old Testament and the New Testament, you see that when God deals with his people, he does so physically, tangibly. He gave Abraham a tangible seal and sign of promise. He gave Moses the Ten Commandments on physical tablets. God deals with us in particular ways that connects with us as we are. He doesn't expect us to be otherworldly. He treats us in the way that he created us. This is asking for the ability to be human and to be good human witnesses to others from God. But this isn't just asking for proof. This is actually asking for the power to represent God to other people. And I want to tell you why. The reason is because you cannot give to others what you do not have. This is very important for us to understand that we cannot give to others what we do not have. We only have what God actually gives us. Jesus' prayer in John 17, 7 through 8 says, Now they know, speaking of his disciples, that everything you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you and they have believed that you sent me. Even Jesus Christ, God's son, God himself is saying, I have what you have given me and I gave them what you gave me. How much safer is it for us then to say God bless us that we might bless others because we only have what you give to us. We only have the blessings that you've already put in our lives. We will only have the blessings you continue to put in our lives. We only have what we need to share the gospel because you give it. This is a reasonable request. This is the request we should be making. This is not selfish. This is not self-centered. This is realistic. We need you, God, to be God, or we will not be who you have made us to be. Blessing is the fuel for God's mission to the world, and without it, we don't get off the ground. Missions without blessing is a plane without fuel. We have to realize that the fuel for going out to people is from God. It is not from ourselves. It feels like that so much of the time, but God is the one who is supposed to do this. At the same time, if God is fueling us, then we are supposed to go. The relief plane is not just supposed to sit on the runway and never go to the Caribbean, never go to Puerto Rico, never go to Turks and Caicos. It is supposed to go. We are supposed to go. We have to go if God has given and at the same time, we cannot go with what he has not given. We can't always be in this state of still getting ready. I'm still getting ready to talk to my neighbors. I'm still getting ready to talk to my cousins, to my family, to whoever it may be. That's not how it works. We are God's people. And it is actually, as Paul says in the scriptures, Christ who makes us fit to do the work of the gospel. We have to ask ourselves then, is Christ not ready? Is he unprepared? Is he unmatched by the situation that we're facing today? Does he need a couple of months to get himself together before he is ready to help you talk to your neighbor, to your coworker, about what God has done for you in your own life? Or is he ready now? 
we have to reverse engineer our own understanding of what it means to share the gospel because it does not depend on us. We are simply the messenger. That is all we have to be. That's all you have to do is show up. That's it. God, as the confession said earlier, is not asking for your help. He wants to work through you. Just participate, and we will see amazing things. But most of all, we need to know here that this blessing is not just physical and tangible harvest anymore. Again, God's people are different. And in light of Christ, we need to see that this request for blessing as Christians of the New Testament and beyond is actually Christ himself. The blessing that we most ultimately need is not someplace to live, is not something to eat. It is most ultimately Christ. He is the bread of life. He is our shelter. And though we definitely need all these tangible things and God is happy to meet them, if we put our hope in those things, if those things become the things that we have to have, they will let us down because they cannot hear us. They will not save us. They will not die for us. Christ did and continues to do these things for us. He continues to save. But why ask for this at all? Verses two and four, I think, get us to think about why they're asking for this blessing, and particularly why ask for the nations? Why should we ask for God to bless us so that we can bless the nations? If we're thinking about this from the perspective of Israel, the nations were not friends. This wasn't the United Nations. This was a rough time. The nations traditionally very often are the enemies of Israel. And I think we can lose the shock factor of the fact that the psalmist is quite possibly here praying for enemies to be blessed to actually serve those that hate them. That's something that the church has known about throughout time, even more recently. Our brothers and sisters in the civil rights movement knew about this, that we're praying that God would move in their lives, that they might go to those who hated them, that love might be greater than hate. And that is still our hope today. We need to feel the shock of praying for our enemies. But we also need to recognize that this might be broader. This talks about nations and peoples. If we think about a country, there are more than one people group often in a country, even in the ancient world. And so this prayer might recognize that there are groups that are oppressed within that country that is a neighbor that needs the gospel, that needs the grace of God in their lives. It's not just the rulers. It's not just those with power. It's those without power. It's those that are disenfranchised. It's those that need God's work in their life. But at the same time, this is very much about those that are God's enemies. So why, why pray for enemies? Why should we do this? We know we're supposed to as Christians, but what's the actual point? Where is the root of this? If we look at Psalm 105, I think it's actually telling when we get to verse 23, Psalm 105 is talking about God's relationship with his people over time, what he has done for them and what their interactions have been like. And it gets to verse 23, it says, then Israel came to Egypt, Jacob sojourned in the land of Ham. Egypt is called the land of Ham. Who is Ham? If we go back to Genesis 9, 18 and 19, it says the sons of Noah who went forth from the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham was the father of Canaan. These three were the sons of Noah, and from these, the people of the whole earth were dispersed. These are not just enemies. These are estranged brothers and sisters. These are those that God created us with, 
of those God preserved alongside us in the past. This is not just a prayer for those that hate us. This is a prayer for blood ties gone bad. Maybe some of you know what that's like this morning. Maybe some of your relationships with your parents, with your friends, with your spouses, they're not what you want them to be. This psalm invites you to pray and ask God to move in you that there might be reconciliation between you and them. It's easy to remove ourselves from this kind of situation of having enemies. I don't know how many of you think you actually have an enemy today, but if we just look back at last Sunday, Stephen Paddock was an enemy to each of those people that were injured or killed there. What would it be like to pray for him? Does that feel challenging? Does that start to invite us into what it would be like in the mind of Israel to pray for those that persecuted them, that enslaved them? This is really challenging. This is not easy. It would be hard to pray for that man. I'm not saying it should be easy and that you should just do it. I'm saying this helps us get our mind around what the psalmist is actually asking us to do, to pray for those that are not like us and so much not like us that we might be tempted to hate them. What does it look like to go even to the people that are not like us? But why would Israel do this beyond the fact that these are estranged siblings? Yeah, I mean, maybe we grew up in the same family, but what does that mean now? You've acted a fool, so am I supposed to still love you? No, this really recognizes that Israel is praying for these things because they recognize that these people need exactly the same thing that they do. Israel is not praying from a position of superiority here. They are praying from a position of equality. Israel needs God's salvation and mercy from the effects of the fall just as much as the nations do. They live in the same world. They face the same basic problems. The same is true of us today. Those we pray for are not worse than us, and we are not better than them. But we have a better gospel and a better God that is able to go to both of us. And really, this is part of the reality of this prayer, is not just recognizing that they need the same things, but they're not any better. This is so helpful to us when we are thinking about witnessing to other people, when we are thinking about sharing the gospel. We're not coming from a position of superiority. We are coming as those that have an equal need but have a greater Savior. Israel was no better. You can look just briefly at the history. Jacob and Esau, Jacob stole his brother's birthright. We have thieves in the line of Israel. Judah, the son of Jacob, slept with a prostitute that was actually his daughter-in-law. We have some jacked up stuff in Israel. In Exodus, the people wander away and forget what God had done for them just literally days before and make an idol to worship instead of God. This is not an all-star team. Israel was not picked because they were the best. They were picked because God decided to pick them. They are not better. We are not better than one another. We are equally in need, and that is so liberating. You don't have to keep competing with each other. You don't have to be better than your neighbor. You don't have to prove yourself to someone else. You just have to have a savior. Do you this morning? Do you have someone that frees you from needing to compete, that frees you from needing to hate, that frees you from not being able to let go of what someone has done to you, even if that thing is terrible? Do you have that? <laughs> really, I mean, we, we need to think about this for ourselves because it is, it is more ingrained in us, it's more ingrained in me than I think it is that I think other people's sins are worse than mine. God is just as displeased with me as someone else. God is just as displeased with me when I am short with my spouse as someone that cuts in front of me with a Maryland license plate. My wife knows that I have a problem 
I testify to that, that many times I think it is Maryland that is trying to kill me. Uh, but we love, again, even our enemies, as we say. Uh, but the point is here that these things are ingrained in us that I think, well, what I do isn't that bad. But what my spouse does, that's really annoying. What I do isn't that bad. What my parents do, that's something that's worth condemning. No, no, God is equally mad at both. And we need to rework in our hearts that, again, we are not better than others no matter how far we come along in the Christian faith, it is only by grace that we have gotten there and it is only by grace that we stay there. We are not better than others. So Israel is asking for this for the nations because they both have the same need of salvation and mercy. They both live in a Genesis 3 world and God judges both of them according to what they have done. But what is the difference? Why is Israel delivered and the nations are not? at least historically when we're thinking about this in the context of when the psalm was written. It's because Israel had someone to intercede for them. If we move from Psalm 105 to Psalm 106, we see that the difference, as the psalmist talks about, is that when Israel rebelled, Moses stood in the breach for them and turned away God's punishment. The difference between being saved being delivered, being led by God, and not is that someone intercedes for you. That's the difference. This is why this prayer is in Scripture, because people in a Genesis 3 world need someone to intercede for them. The psalmist sees this, recognizes it, but can't fix it. This prayer at the time of the psalmist is still a prayer of expectation, a prayer of hope, a prayer of requesting that God would actually do something. But now, on the other side of Christ, this prayer is fulfilled in Christ. We have the greater intercessor that the psalmist was looking for. We have someone to stand in for us. We have someone to intercede. Christ did this at the cross, taking the place that should have been ours for us so that we might have life. Christ stepped in so that we also might step in. He has made his work our work. The work of missions is Christ's work first and foremost. We need to be freed up to know that, but we also need to be glorified in knowing that something as beautiful as saving others would be given to us to participate in. How many times do we think of sharing our faith with people as a chore or as something that we despise or are afraid of? This is actually an invitation to do something that God is doing. This is a rare invitation to participate in his work. But how do we actually do this? How do we fulfill this call to intercede for others? Well, first, we need to recognize that we are only, again, secondary intercessors. We are not the primary ones who intercede. That is Jesus Christ. All we are doing in missions, all we are doing in trying to share the gospel is introducing people to the intercessor. We're not becoming that ourselves. We are just the intermediary. We are just making the introduction. That is all you have to do. If you don't know how to do that, just invite someone to read the gospels with you. Jesus' life is on display. They can meet him there. You have met them there. You know that. And if you have not met him there this morning, I invite you this week. Look and see if the Christianity that you have rejected lines up with the Christianity that you read in Scripture. Find out. Investigate. Because there is the opportunity to have someone stand in for you, to have someone stand up for you. Isn't that what we want? Isn't that what all of our political activism is about? 
is to have someone stand up for you, to recognize what you need and to say, I am with you. That is Jesus Christ. He says, I am with you. I see you. I hear you. I am with you. That is what Christ does for us. So we introduce them to Christ. But we also pray like the psalmist. We can pray this same prayer. And in that, what we are calling on God to do is simply to remember. Moses does this in Exodus 32. He says, God, remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of the heaven. All we are asking God to do in saving people is to remember. And you don't have to be a Bible buff to do that. You can pray through your own life. You can say, God, you saved me like this. I was jacked up when you found me. I'm still jacked up, and you saved me. Would you do that for my neighbor? Pray the promises. Ask God to do for you what he has done for people in the past. Just rely on what has gone before for what will still come. But we also need to intercede tangibly. It is not enough to be a church of prayers and to be without action. In James, it says, if we tell someone, go, be warm and well-fed, but do not actually provide for their needs, what have you really done? That is not the love of the gospel. As God deals with us tangibly, so we must deal with one another tangibly. I don't know what that looks like. If that's someone grieving, then it's probably just sitting with them. If that's someone that's really struggling through a relationship problem, that's walking with them, that's being patient. If that's someone that's lost their job, it's trying to find ways to help them cope with the lack of dignity they feel from having lost their job alongside of the tangible work of helping them find another job. And doing that from the position of knowing that you are in the same equal footing before God, that you're not superior above them because you have a job. But these things have been given to us as blessings that we might bless others, not that we might be more superior. Everyone needs an intercessor. Who's interceding for your neighbor? Who's interceding for your siblings? Who's interceding for your parents? Who's doing that in your life if it's not you? Think about, as Kenny said, just one person this week that you can intercede for. Put that on a sticky note on your wall, wherever, write it on your hand. I don't know what you want to do, but intercede for someone this week. That's who we're supposed to be. That's what we're given to do. God has given us the fuel to get the plane off the ground. Just hit the ignition button. Start interceding and see what God does. This is his work that we get to participate in. All we're doing is introducing them to the one that intercedes. That is all we're doing. We are siblings that need a savior. That's why the psalmist is requesting this. But why this refrain? Why the repeating of verses three and five where it says, may the peoples praise you, God. May all the peoples praise you. There's something to the structure of this psalm. There's something to the way that this poetry was written that highlights for us what's going on here. Well, I think the things that are, at least two things that are highlighted by this repetition, by this refrain, is urgency and expectation. One commentator said that he thought that verse three was repeated in verse five because it was too important to only sing once. Likewise, I think that there should be an urgency in our hearts that recognizes that this psalm is too important to read once on a Sunday and never think again. That the request that everyone might know the goodness of God is too important to only sing once. And we see that 
tragically in the events of last week, that we really don't know when we're going to see our neighbors for the last time. You really don't know when you're going to talk to your parents or your friends for the last time. It doesn't have to be an act of violence. We all know what it's like in some way or another to feel sick and feel like maybe we won't make it to the next day. I have a rich tradition of getting food poisoning. I have felt that many, many times. I thank God I don't know if tomorrow is going to happen. But there are far more serious things. Some of us know what it's like to actually get that phone call about our parents that says time is wrapping up. If you are the only intercessor that someone ever meets in their life, are you interceding for them? And again, this is not you putting on some superhuman strength of your own. This is just going. You are just introducing them to God. Who is interceding for this person in your life? If not you, who? If not now, how much time do you have? How much time do you have before you move, before they move? It doesn't have to be an act of God for you no longer having influence in this person's life. The days are short. We need to make the most of them. There's an urgency to this. But there is also an expectation. We sing this again and again. We pray this again and again. We read this psalm again and again because we don't yet have what we're praying for. We still haven't found it. In the same way that the psalmist was hoping that God would do this, we still don't have the fullness of what this psalm is praying for. We have it far more than the psalmist did. The fact that any of us are sitting here this morning is testimony to the fact that God has partially answered this already. America is not in Scripture. You are sitting in a place that was not imaginable to the people that received the gospel. God has heard this prayer and answered in your own life. Do you think that he can do it again? Would you bless us again, God? And really, that's part of the structure of this psalm. It reminds us at beginning and end that the blessing is from God and it is to blessing that we return. It's blessing that hems in the work of missions. It's not we start with a little bit of blessing and then we move on by ourselves and we see what happens. The structure of this psalm actually encases for us that when we go, we go completely hemmed in by the power, the work, and the authority of God to extend the grace of the gospel to others. It is grace at the beginning. It is grace at the end. It is grace throughout. The missions of God are encased in grace. They are encased in blessing. It is Jesus Christ at the beginning that we come to know. It is Jesus Christ that we introduce our neighbors to. And all along, it is the expectation of meeting Jesus Christ face to face that we are hoping for. It is not something else. It is not a promotion. It is not some minor deliverance. In the beginning and at the end, the blessing that we have and that we hope for is certain and cannot be taken away because of what Christ has done. You have more than you already know this morning. Remember what you have. It cannot be taken away from you. Some approval by your friends can be taken away from you. Jesus Christ cannot be taken away from you. Some performance review you have at your job can be taken away from you. Your job can be taken away from you. Some relationship you have that you dearly love, the approval of a spouse or a friend, a parent, can be taken away from you. Jesus Christ cannot and will not be taken away from you. It is blessing in the beginning. It is blessing that will be at the end. That is the guarantee and the hope of our faith. What if we spent more time this week thinking about what we already have in Christ than what we don't have. 
What if we just spent time thinking about what it will be like to actually see him? What if instead of taking out our phones when we're alone for a minute, awkwardly standing, waiting for the bus, we just prayed and said, God, I, I can't wait to be with you. I really need to be with you. There are so many broken things in my life that I just desperately want to be with you. And I'm just wondering what that will be like to sit down with all of the believers and to celebrate. We have a great vision. We don't often think about that. We get lost in Netflix and so many other entertainments in our news feeds, but we actually have something worth thinking about again and again, and it's actually the same thing. It's the greatest story you could possibly reread. It's the greatest movie you could possibly rewatch, and you are part of it. The invitation of the gospel is to find your place in this story, not just to find yourself as part of some ideals, though there are morals and ethics all throughout Scripture. This is about the story of God working in and through people to redeem and restore what was lost and broken. This is a story that we get to be part of, and part of the challenge is that we don't know it well enough, that we don't go back to Christ as the one who intercedes for us. We go to our finances as the things that intercede for us. We go to our spouse. We go to our wits, to our abilities, to our strength, to our resolve, to our cleverness, whatever it is. But we have an intercessor. We have someone that approves of us, that will not reject us. That is what we have. I'm saying it a lot because we need to hear it a lot. I need to hear it a lot. You are already approved in Christ. You cannot lose that. You may not feel it now. Ask God to help you to feel it more. You can ask for that. You don't just have to know how to do it. Again, ask. We need to get ourselves in the posture of the Psalms of just asking because we know we only have what God has given us and we do have something great in what he has given us. This is still the time to ask for blessing. This is still the time when God hears prayer. This is still the time when jacked up as your last week may have been, as many times as you may have sinned against God and man, that he is still happy to hear your prayers because that's the kind of God that he is. Our prayer is that someday this will become a reality, that we'll see something like what Isaiah spoke about in chapter two, verse four, when speaking of God, he said, he will judge between the nations and will settle disputes for many peoples. They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for more anymore. We are waiting for this new heavens and new earth. We're waiting for the whole world to praise God. This is our refrain to repeat, this is your song this morning to sing. May the peoples praise you, O God. May the peoples praise you. Let's pray. God, this is difficult work that you have called us to, but it is good work. It is work that we just get to participate in. God, would you free us up to do it? Would you captivate our hearts by the story of what you have done in the gospel, what you have done in our own lives, God? Would you help us to see it more and to share it more and to love you more and more just as you love us more and more? It's in your son's name that we pray. Amen.